All right, if you can find your way back to your seats. We are going to be in the book of Romans, chapter 3. <clears throat> okay, I got a million dollar trivia question for you. Actually, it's not a million dollars at all. I won't give you anything, but you will know if you got it right. Uh, Pastor Mike mentioned that we're transitioning from the stories about Jesus and, and his followers, the narrative section, to the, to the letters of the New Testament. Um, which will bring us all the way till the end, which is the book of Revelation, which is different than a letter. But um, does anybody know why the books of the Bible in the New Testament are in the order that they're in? The length of each book. How many of you guys think he's right? You're like, you would be so mean if you actually pointed out that he was wrong. Yeah, actually, that's exactly right. They're, they're, they're organized by the authors, so all the letters of Paul are together, John are together, Peter are together, but then they're listed in the order of their length. Is that not so disappointing? <laughs> like, you feel like, oh, there should be a deeper, more meaningful spiritual reason. It's like, nope, this one's the longest. Romans it is. So actually, the book of Romans, though, is Paul's most thorough treatment of what the good news of the gospel is and why it is God's power to save. So I'm going to pray, and then there'll be an intro video to the whole of the book, and then we'll be in Romans chapter 3. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity we have to open up your word. God, you, through the Holy Spirit, inspired that it would be written, preserved it, so that we could read it 2,000 years later, and now through the power of the Spirit are going to open our minds and our hearts to not just comprehend it, but to love it. God, when I think about the gospel being preached and the foolishness of preaching, I'm encouraged that you use the foolishness of preaching to save. And so Holy Spirit, I pray that you would do that this morning. Someone in this room, someone listening, that you would be mighty to save as we see what an all-sufficient, beautiful Savior Jesus is. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Here's an intro video. The book of Romans was written by Paul, a former persecutor of Christians, between 56 and 58 AD. Paul's writing to the church in Rome is often considered his most significant letter as he unashamedly unpacks the practical implications of the gospel for an ethnically divided church. With this letter, Paul reminds the Romans that all people are broken and in need of saving. While God did choose Israel to be set apart, they, along with every Jew and Gentile, have an even guilty standing before God. The Old Testament law is no longer the standard to which the people must hold themselves. Rather, Jesus has established a new covenant to justify all peoples. It is through faith in Jesus' victory over sin and death that humanity is given a new, right relationship with God the Father. Paul encourages the church with their future inheritance in heaven and calls them to be transformed by God's grace in this current life. In response to the continuing ethnic divisions in the church, Paul calls the Romans to look past earthly differences and embrace their unity in Jesus' kingdom. Because of Jesus and his liberating work on the cross, the church is established to come together as one to follow in Jesus' loving example of humility and forgiveness. 
If you are a planner and wondering, okay, what's going to be the the next book or what we're doing next week, we're just going to go through the rest of the New Testament in order. So I I know at the beginning of this, we often had the goal of reading the whole book before Sunday morning. The good news is that the letters in the New Testament are short, and you can do it if you want. So uh, Romans 16 chapters, it goes downhill from there. So that's probably something we could do if you want to prepare your heart that way. Um, The passage that we're going to look at this morning has been called by a lot of important Christians over the years the most important paragraph in the Bible. That's weighty praise, isn't it? Martin Luther said uh, that that this section in the book of Romans is the center of the whole Bible. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a famous preacher of the 1900s, probably the most famous, said this is the most important and crucial passage in the whole of Scripture And then contemporary Bible scholar Leon Morris, he's not named Martin, but we we like him anyway, uh, said it is possibly the most important single paragraph ever written. Have I piqued your curiosity yet? This is weighty, weighty stuff because we're talking about the heart of the good news, the heart of the gospel, what we must believe in order to be saved by Jesus. You see, Romans chapter 3, verses 20 to 26, answers the question, how can we be made right with God? And it explains for us what Jesus Christ actually accomplishes for sinners. See, we can be made right with God through faith in Jesus Christ. This salvation is a free gift that we cannot earn, but we must receive by faith. Let's read it together uh, from the English Standard Version here. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. That's God's sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Did you get all that? All those words, you're like, amen, Pastor Kyle. See, there's something about reading something that's that packed with words that we don't always use in our everyday vocabulary that gives us this innate sense when we read through it of like, I missed a lot of that. Anybody feeling that right now? Would you tell me if you did? I feel that way, and I'm preaching this sermon. So um, I'm going to read it one more time, only this time I'm going to read it out of the New Living Translation. And just a a note about translations. Uh, We like a lot of different ones. They all have different strengths and weaknesses to offer. I think if you're looking at a study Bible or something that we preach out of regularly, we use the English Standard Version. It's a good word-for-word, more of a literal-type translation. But with that, as they shoot for the most precise wording, sometimes they use words that we don't use all the time. There's another type of translation, which we're going to 
read the New Living Translation, which is essentially trying to get across the idea that's being communicated in the most plain of language. And the reason that I often like to read it out of both is that sometimes I read it and I'm like, oh, that is a beautiful word. I need to figure out what that means. And then other times I'll read a different translation and be like, that was amazing. Is that really what it says? And you go back and it does. So here we go. Uh, the New Living Translation, same text. For no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. But now God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law, as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God, in his grace, freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. This sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past. For he was looking ahead and including them in what he would do for them in this present time. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness. For he himself is fair and just, and he makes sinners right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. Here's where we're going to go today, and if you're a note taker, there's three points and three words. Three points, three words. Point number one, the law can't make you righteous, it can only reveal your need. Point number two, but the good news is that there is a way to be made righteous apart from the law, something that God provides. Point number three, the way to be made righteous is through faith in Jesus Christ. And then three Bible words to help us understand how this works. Propitiation, redemption, Justification. Got it? Three points, three words. Point number one. The law can't make you righteous. It can only reveal your need. This has been the case that Paul has been making all the way through the letter, but he summarizes in chapter 3, verse 20. He says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his or God's sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Again, in verse 23, he says, There is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So Paul has been making a case in this letter. This is the most full treatment of the gospel possible. And he begins the good news with the bad news. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. The salvation happens by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he spends about two chapters telling us why we need it. And he says, for Jew and Gentile alike, all of us have fallen short of God's standard. All of us are rightly condemned. And he begins by addressing the Gentiles, the people who didn't have the law of God, in the second half of chapter 1. And he says, you're still guilty because there are two things that are incredibly plain from creation. One, that God exists, and two, that God is good. We see this, right? When we go out and we look at creation, the natural, logical conclusion that we should come to is, there is a creator. 
right? Because we see his creation. In the same way, if you were to walk into an art gallery and see a painting hanging on the wall, your natural conclusion would be, through time and random chance, these colors just appeared on the wall, were splashed by a bunch of atoms colliding with each other, and we have this beautiful painting, right? No. The most natural conclusion to come to is, there's a painter somewhere that did that. Now, we can judge whether they're good or not, but, but the fact that there is a painting means that there is a painter somewhere. And so when we look at creation, the natural conclusion that we should all come to is, there's a creator. Do you see that? Second, he also says we can come to the conclusion that that creator is good. Because as we look at creation, we see that it's beautiful and awe-inspiring. And, and that the creator should be worthy of our worship and worthy of our praise. Now the problem with humanity is not that we don't know that God exists. We all innately know that God exists, that we are created by him. The problem is that we suppress the truth of that so that we can worship and serve something else so that we can pursue something else other than God, so that we can pursue something that God maybe has explicitly denied to us, we actually fall in love with the creation and elevate that and worship that and serve that rather than the creator. And the Bible says that's sin. And because of that, because of the suppression of truth, the opposite of a Christian is not an atheist. The opposite of a Christian is an idolater. Someone who worships and serves something else in creation. In fact, I think the most logical point of atheism is so that you can worship something else because it takes a lot of faith to believe it just as it takes faith to believe that God has revealed himself in creation and through his word and so those even if you didn't have the bible or God's law written to you you stand condemned before him because God has made himself plain in creation and we haven't done a good job responding to that now what about those who actually had the law he, he spends another chapter basically saying those who had the law, the Jewish people, they didn't keep the law. And that would make them lawbreakers. And how many laws do you have to break in order to be a lawbreaker? One. Oh, it's not a big deal. I only murdered one person. I mean, I'm not really a murderer. <laughs> Just once. It's ridiculous, right? I only lied once. I'm not really a liar. And on and on, we can go down. All it takes is one sin, one time missing God's mark, and we are lawbreakers, meaning we are guilty before God's holy and righteous standard. Now, most of us want to believe deep down that that's not actually the standard. That God's standard is, is something like, well, I'm pretty good, especially if you look at somebody else. Really? We're going to go with that. Well, if that's the case, wouldn't God make it plain that that's the case? See, most people believe, they, they understand, yeah, we, we kind of screw up sometimes, but I'm really not that bad. And, and I'll be saved one day if, if sometime I could, you know, if I can kind of overwhelm my bad stuff with my good stuff. If I can just pile up a lot of good works and, and then therefore it'll outweigh the bad stuff. And there's this big cosmic scale in the sky. Now, there's the only, only problem with that is that the Bible doesn't teach that at all. And if that was the standard, God would have to be, would actually have to tell us that in order to be good, right? You ever had someone have an expectation of you that you didn't know about and you missed it? It's not any fun, is it? All the married people are like, uh-huh, that's like the first two years of marriage. <laughs> Everybody with a roommate's like, oh, that's what's going on. Yeah, that, that'll actually save you a lot of time. <sighs> Can 
you imagine a murderer coming up and saying, you know what, it's not a big deal, I did a lot of community service. I kind of outweighed that. No, I think we all innately know that the standard for being a lawbreaker is breaking the law. And so Paul's natural conclusion is that for by works of the law, no human being will be justified or declared righteous in God's sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Now, why all this bad news? Because the good news isn't good unless you understand your need. If I were to come up to you and say, you know what, I got this, I got this miracle cure for cancer, you'd be like, that's awesome. I don't have cancer. It's not until you realize, wait a second, I need that treatment, that that treatment actually becomes good news to you. That's why he spends two and a half chapters making the case for the bad news, that we all stand justly condemned by the law and by God's natural revelation of himself that we need a savior. Point number two, the good news is that there is a way to be made righteous apart from the law. So, okay, good, we got the condemnation down, but the good news is now a righteousness from God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Remember, the law and the prophets, that's shorthand for the Old Testament commands, the Old Testament, that they reveal to us God's character, but they reveal to us our need, and now this way of being made righteous apart from the law is a new thing, but it's, it was pointed to ahead of time. So what is it? It's the righteousness of God that's been manifested. What a great word. Been revealed, been made known, been exploded in our mind. It's, it's, it's here now. What is the righteousness of God? It sounds like a loaded phrase, doesn't it? Righteousness means doing what is good or doing what is right. It also means God's commitment to uphold what is good and right in the world. Actually, in the Greek language, the same word used for both righteousness and justice. And so righteousness is the standard. Justice is in many ways upholding that particular standard. This righteousness is now given not through achievement or through doing the law. That's what we're lacking but it's news that we believe that God has sent a righteousness outside of ourselves that we can now tap into. It's available to us. How? Point three. The way to be made righteous is through faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus is for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. See, this salvation, this righteousness, is available to all who believe in it. And we receive this as a gift by faith. See, three times in this paragraph, we're told that Jesus' righteousness is available to those who have faith or belief or trust in him. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus to all who believe or for all who believe. Verse 25, to be received by faith. Verse 26, the one who has faith in Jesus. This is not for everybody, but only those who receive it by faith. So how do we do that? How, what is faith? Faith isn't what saves us. Jesus saves us. The grace of God found in what Jesus has done is what saves us. Faith is what taps into that or makes it sufficient for us. 
Let me give you an illustration. Um, an outlet is where power or electricity is at, right? In order to turn on a lamp, I need to take the cord and plug it into the outlet in order for the light bulb to come on. Does that make sense? The outlet in that scenario is God's grace or salvation in Jesus. It's what's been done. It's the power to save. Faith is the cord that taps into that. It's the conduit by which God's grace flows into our life. It's what turns it on for us. In the same way, our faith doesn't save us, but it does connect us to our Savior, Jesus. Now, we sing about this all the time. This is the gospel. This is the good news that we receive. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Jesus saves us by his grace. We tap into it by believing in him, by trusting that what he has done is sufficient for me. This is both incredibly simple and complex to understand, isn't it? It's simple enough for the kids in the room to understand that, yes, you've sinned, and Jesus can be your Savior. He is the one who forgives you of your sin, and so you can trust in him today. It's complex enough that we're going to spend the rest of our life figuring out what God did when we believed, okay? And one of the ways that we are helped in our understanding of what actually happens is by some theological words, three of them in particular, propitiation, redemption, and justification. We see them littered through this paragraph. Now, some people, when they hear theological terms, kind of roll their eyes and be like, come on, Pastor Kyle, no one talks like that. Yes, but here's the thing. If you're going to understand the Bible, then you need to understand some Bible words. More than that, if you're going to understand reality and God has revealed himself through the Bible, then you need to understand some Bible words in order to have a right understanding of reality. Now, we do this in every single thing. I'm not naturally a hockey fan. I know I'm outed by a lot of people here because if you're in Duluth, Minnesota, you, you just are a hockey fan. You're going to watch a lot of hockey, okay? But in order to understand hockey, you have to understand things like offsides, which takes a few years, let me be honest. <laughs> and icing. And I'm not exactly sure even when it's icing and when it's not. I don't even think the people know. But icing's a big deal. And interference and cross-checking and hooking and a poke check and all of these things that you're like, what in the world is that? Now, if we were to go to maybe a more dignified sport like baseball, for instance... <laughs> And you heard me talking about the pitcher throwing a slider, or a curveball, or a knuckleball, or that was a great circle changeup. Some of you guys are like, you lost me. Others are like, no, that's what you need to understand to know what the pitches are, because each one of those are a different kind of pitch that moves a little bit different way, right? Or we do this with computers all the time, right? I mean, 40 years ago, no one knew what an email was, right? But we've all adopted computer language like sending an attachment or posting a, a, a GIF or updating a profile or sharing a link or Zooming or FaceTiming with someone. All of this new jargon, but, it, but language that you need to know if you're going to understand the world of computers and cell phones, right? It's not just that the Bible has its own language. Everything does. And so if we're going to be serious students of the Bible, we need to understand some Bible 
words. Okay, so here they are. Propitiation, redemption, justification. We see them in verses 23 to 25. Propitiation means the removal of wrath or a wrath-bearing substitute. We read, Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This means simply that Jesus came and became a wrath-bearing substitute for sin. He is the sacrifice that took the penalty for your sin and my sin. He bore the wrath deserved for us for our rebellion and our law-breaking, and he paid the price himself. His blood became the propitiation or the atoning sacrifice for sin. Now, some of people in this room get a little bit uncomfortable to talk about God's wrath, and certainly God's wrath being poured out in anger on his son. But perhaps you haven't really wrestled with the wrath of God because you don't know the reality of how heinous your sin actually is, how offensive to God it is that you sin, that you rebel, and that the choices of your sin wreak havoc on very real people in his creation. Actually, if you understand the love of God at all, then the wrath of God is not too hard for you to get your mind around. The opposite of love is not wrath. Do you know that? The opposite of love is indifference. And God is not indifferent toward you or toward his creation. God loves his creation with a jealous love. Therefore, he must pour out his anger and his wrath and his justice on sin that mars it so deeply. To the parents in the room, can you imagine your child being abused by someone? Or maybe the rest in the room, your sister, your brother, your spouse, your roommate. Upon hearing the news of that wretched abuse, is your response indifference? Not a big deal. Or is it anger? Is it a longing for justice? A longing for someone to pay, for someone to be punished for that? That they're going to carry the scars of that the, the rest of their lives. That's going to affect them deeply. You're not indifferent. The wrath of God is, is proof that he is not indifferent to your suffering. He cares and he cares deeply. In fact, he hates it when you suffer. And one day his justice will be delivered. Either at the end of all things or it already has been in his son. That Jesus actually comes and becomes a propitiation, a wrath-bearing substitute in our place. See, this idea of sin is uncomfortable, isn't it? Because there's, there's kind of two aspects of this with the wrath of God. On the one hand, we are victims of other people's sin. We've been hurt deeply wounded deeply by the choices of other people. And it's encouraging to know that God is not indifferent, but that he will square the scales. But the flip side of that is that we are also perpetrators of sin, aren't we? We've hurt other people deeply. Yeah, we're all complex. We all have issues. But the fact remains we are both perpetrators and victims 
of sin. Sometimes it's so discouraging to live in a world where people think in such a binary way. See, our world doesn't understand all that much the complexity of human beings. We're either victims or perpetrators in people's minds. Not both. And so we live in a world where the only way to gain power or gain authority on anything is to be able to prove your victimhood to everybody else. To show how you were wronged. And one of the responses or one of the realities, because you were wronged, you're not actually responsible for the choices you make. Oh, now I'm meddling, aren't I? But do you see how dehumanizing that is? On the one hand, it acknowledges the deep hurt and wounds that we all carry. In another way, it completely robs us of any agency to be able to make choices today that might be different. It takes away the responsibility saying, hey, I'm a victim. But it gives us no power to actually make different choices. Here's the thing. You are both a victim of sin and a perpetrator of sin. And if that sounds complex, good, good news. It is complex. And the gospel is the only thing that I know that actually helps us to sort through both of them. Because while I long for justice, I also deeply hope that there's mercy. Isn't it interesting that we long for justice toward the people that have hurt us, but when it comes to us, we want God's mercy? The beautiful thing of the good news, and we'll talk about this at the end, the last two verses, is the good news is that we don't have to choose between one or the other. That God is just and the justifier of the ungodly. And part of that is that he is a propitiation, Jesus, the wrath-bearing substitute. Second, redemption. This means that Jesus purchases us or settles our debt. He pays our ransom price. We are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. What does it mean for Jesus to be our redemption? Here's an illustration that's made the rounds over the decades. You might have heard it before. It's incredibly memorable, so I'm just going to share it again. It's about a little boy and a boat, and it helps us understand redemption. There was a boy who painstakingly built a model sailboat. He spent many days and weeks building it. And when it was finally completed, he had decided that he was going to test it on the open waters close to where he lived. The boy loved the boat and was very proud of what he had built. So he went down to the water. First, he made sure that the sails were set right. And then, excitedly, he put the boat into the water with a, a great sense of anticipation. He gave it a gentle push, and it took off. And the wind caught the sails. And the boat began cutting through the water beautifully. But here's the thing. It sailed too well. And before he realized it, he, he saw that the boat was getting further and further out. And so he, he stepped into the water but realized that it's already too far away. And this boat that he had spent weeks building, this boat that he loved, disappeared like a small speck on the horizon as it went away. When the boy got home... He was crying, and his mother asked, what's wrong, what's wrong, didn't it work? And the boy said, no, it actually worked too well. It sailed away. Sometime later, the boy was walking downtown. He passed a secondhand store, and there in the window, he saw the sailboat that he had labored to build. He went into the store and went up to the sailboat. He picked it up and said to the owner of the store, that boat is mine, and he held it in his arms and began to walk out of the store. 
The owner, of course, said, wait a minute now. It's my boat. I paid someone for it. The boy said, no, 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 no. It's my boat. I made it. Look at the little scratches I did here. Here are my initials on the bottom. The owner said, I'm sorry, Sonny. If, you're, if you want that boat, you're going to have to pay for it. The poor little guy didn't have any money. And so he went home to see what odd jobs he could do in order to gain enough money to purchase back the sailboat. The boy worked hard. He saved his pennies. And one day, he had enough money. He went down to the store and marched in and put the money down and he bought his boat back. And as he left the store, holding the sailboat close to his chest, the boy could be heard saying, you're my boat. You're twice my boat. First, you're my boat because I made you. Second, you're my boat because I bought you. That's what God's redemption in Jesus is. We are twice Redeemed, God made us, and so we are his, and that he bought us back through the precious blood of his son, Jesus Christ. All right, so here's the thing. If the word propitiation gives us a picture of the temple and the sacrificial system, and the word redemption gives us more of an economic picture of purchase and ransom and freedom, our final word gives us a picture of the courtroom, of our judgment, and the word is justification. The word justification is our our legal declaration of righteous in God's sight. We're told that we are justified by his grace as a gift. So we plug into the salvation with faith. The salvation is in Jesus. By faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are declared righteous. He is our justification. This is the righteousness of God, not from the law that is now revealed to us, given to us, that we tap into by faith. It means that as we stand in the courtroom of God, as we await our judgment, the verdict that is waiting to fall on every single one of us for our rebellion and our law-breaking is guilty or condemned. That's what we deserve. But the opposite of the word condemned is justified. See, instead... Because of what Jesus has done, God looks at us in that moment and he sees us through the lens or the perfect life of Jesus. We are in him. We, are, we have his righteousness credited to our account. God looks at us through Jesus' goggles, as it were, so that we're judged on the basis of his resume rather than our own performance. And God says, righteous, justified in my sight. We call that good news. And that's not something you earn. That's something that you receive as a gift by faith. It's what Jesus does for you. I don't know about you guys, but on that day of judgment, I don't want my own resume. It's lousy. I want Jesus's. And that's the righteousness of God that comes to us through faith in Jesus. In verses 27 and 28, Paul goes on to say, so in light of that, there's no room for boasting at all. Guys, this is such good news. What it means is that we don't have to justify ourselves. We don't have to prove ourselves. We don't have to make the case that we are significant anymore because Jesus already has. Now, how does he do that? We're told that he bears the wrath in our place. He's a propitiation. That he pays the redemption price, our ransom price, by his blood. He's our redemption. He provides for us justification. Through Jesus, we are declared righteous. 
One of the tensions in the Old Testament story as we've traced through the thread is this. Is God just or is God merciful? Will God judge sin and sinners or will he show mercy and forgive? And it seems like sometimes God's judgment falls while other times we look at the Old Testament saints and it seems like God gives them a pass. I mean, how would you feel if you were Uriah the Hittite who got murdered after your wife had been taken from you? How would you feel if you were Sarah, Abraham's wife, and he hid behind you and married you off to another? How do you square in your mind that that Jonah completely disobeyed God, ran in the exact opposite direction, and yet it seems like God just overlooked that? Do you see the tension? Is God good or is God merciful? Is God just or does God forgive? And the answer to that question in Jesus is yes. He's both. Verse 25 and 26. This sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past. Think Old Testament saints. For he was looking ahead and including them in what he would do in this present time. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness for he himself is fair and just and he makes sinners right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. All those horrible things done Paid in full. And yet mercy is also released. That's why we're told that Jesus, or God, is both just and the justifier of the ungodly, to which we all say, amen. Amen. I need that. That's good news. So guys, what do we do with this good news today? And I say news, not advice. Advice is something you have to do. News is something you either believe or you don't. First thing is that every single one in, us, in this room, that the invitation is to believe this, to trust this, to put your faith in Jesus rather than yourself to save, to justify, to redeem, and to cleanse you. If you're here this morning and you've never put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus, or maybe you've believed a false understanding of what the good news is and you thought, you know what, I'm just here to be good. I'm trying to have my good outweigh my bad. I'm trying to do all of these things. I want God to to see a good person when he sees me. The stark news is that you're not, but that Jesus is an even more wonderful Savior than you ever dared hope. You're probably worse than you think. But Jesus is a more sufficient Savior. Would you believe in him today? Would you trust that that's not just true in general, that's actually true for you if you would reach out and take it by faith? Second, in this exploration of what the gospel is, was there a certain phrase that gave you fresh insight into what God has done for you? Maybe something just hit you differently today. I would say if that's you, don't waste it. Spend this week just thinking on it, meditating on it, Asking God to reveal more and more. Third, let's go through those words. If Jesus is in fact our propitiation, it means that God is no longer angry with you. Your sin has been dealt with. But brother, sister, are you living like that's true? Do you live like the work is finished? Or do you live like you still got some work to do in order for God to actually be happy with you? Jesus is your propitiation. And you can't add to that. It's finished. Second, if Jesus has truly paid your ransom, if if he has redeemed you at great cost to himself, then consider how God feels about you. He's not indifferent. He loves you. 
He loves you. He loves you. And he likes you. Sometimes that's harder for us to believe, isn't it? Now, if that's true, that your debt is paid and that you are loved, that changes all of your relationships, doesn't it? Makes you a far less needy person. Imagine if someone today took and canceled all your debt. Your mortgage, your student loans, the credit card debt you wish you never had, all your medical bills paid in full, done, canceled. It'd be pretty amazing, wouldn't it? But then imagine that being done, and then you still paid all your bills again next month. Kept writing checks. Even though it was canceled, it was paid. Some of us, that's how we live. We forget that the debt has been paid, that we have been redeemed, that we have been ransomed, and we are set free. Finally, I found so much freedom in the truth and the beauty that Jesus is my justification. If that's true, then you can rest from the work underneath all the work you do. You know what I mean by that? The work that you do to try to prove yourself, to feel a sense of significance, to justify your existence. That gnawing insecurity that says, look at me, look at me. The humble brags that slip out of our mouth that talk about something that we did that we want others to notice. See, the truth is, if God has justified you, then you don't have to do that anymore. Because you're not judged on your resume anyway. Jesus has justified you. The work is finished. Now, that's a lot, isn't it? And it's easy for us to forget that great and glorious truth. That's why we preach it every week. That's why it's what you need to hear every single week. It's also why Jesus gave us communion. So let's pray, and then we're going to turn our attention to the communion table. Oh, God, I thank you for the good news. I thank you that in Jesus we are justified. The wrath has been satisfied. The payment has been made. Help us to live like it's true. God, I pray for the person who maybe heard that for the first time ever today. And the person who heard it for the 30,000th time who still needs to believe its goodness today. Would you awaken faith in us? Would you nourish the faith that exists? In Jesus' name, amen.